Now, this is Genesis chapter 43, and it's the next part of our story of Joseph. And we pick up the story at the home of Jacob, otherwise known as Israel, and all his sons. Now, the famine was still severe in the land. So when they'd eaten all the grain that they'd brought from Egypt, their father said to them, Go back and buy us a little more food. But Judah said to him, That man warned us solemnly, You will not see my face again unless your brother is with you. If you send our brother along with us, we will go down and buy food for you. But if you'll not send him, we'll not go down. Because that man said to us, You will not see my face again unless your brother is with you. And Israel asked, Why did you bring this trouble on me by telling the man you had another brother? They replied, the man questioned us closely about ourselves and our family. Is your father still living? He asked us, do you have another brother? We simply answered his questions. How are we to know? He would say, bring your brother down here. Then Judah said to Israel, his father, send the boy along with me. And we'll go at once, so that we and you and our children may live and not die. I myself will guarantee his safety. You can hold me personally responsible for him. If I don't bring him back to you and set him here before you, I will bear the blame before you all my life. As it is, if we hadn't delayed, we could have gone and returned twice. Their father Israel said to them, if it must be, then do this. Put some of the best products of the land in your bags and take them down to the man as a gift. A little balm, a little honey, some spices and myrrh, some pistachio nuts and almonds. Take double the amount of silver with you, for you must return the silver that was put back into the mouths of your sacks. Perhaps it was a mistake. Take your brother also, and go back to the man at once, and may God Almighty grant you mercy before the man, so that he will let your other brother and Benjamin come back with you. As for me, if I am bereaved, I am bereaved. So the men took the gifts and double the amount of silver, and Benjamin also. They hurried down to Egypt and presented themselves to Joseph. When Joseph saw Benjamin with them, he said to the steward of his house, Take these men to my house, slaughter an animal, prepare dinner. They are to eat with me at noon. The man did as Joseph told him and took the men to Joseph's house. The men were frightened when they were taken to his house. They thought, we were brought here because of that silver that was put back into our sacks the first time. He wants to attack us and overpower us and seize us as slaves and take our donkeys. So they went up to Joseph's steward and spoke to him at the entrance to the house. Please, sir, they said, we came down here the first time to buy food. But at the place where we stopped for the night, we opened our sacks and each of us found his silver, the exact weight, in the mouth of his sack. So we brought it back with us. We've also brought additional silver with us to buy food. We don't know who put our silver in our sacks. It's all right, he said. 
Don't be afraid. Your God, the God of your father, has given you treasure in your sacks. I received your silver. And he brought Simeon out to them. The steward took the men into Joseph's house, gave them water to wash their feet, and provided fodder for the donkeys. They prepared their gifts for Joseph's arrival at noon because they'd heard that they were to eat there. When Joseph came home, they presented to him the gifts they brought into the house, and they bowed down before him to the ground. He asked them how they were, and then he said, And how is your aged father you told me about? Is he still living? And they replied, Your servant, our father, is still alive and well. And they bowed low to pay him honour. As he looked about and saw his brother Benjamin, his own mother's son, he asked, Is this your youngest brother, the one you told me about? And he said, God, be gracious to you, my son. Deeply moved at the sight of his brother, Joseph hurried out and looked for a place to weep. He went into his private room and wept there. After he'd washed his face, he came out and, controlling himself, said, Serve the food. They served him by himself, the brothers by themselves, and the Egyptians who ate with him by themselves, because Egyptians could not eat with Hebrews. That's detestable to Egyptians. The men had been seated before him in the order of their ages, from the firstborn to the youngest. They looked at each other in astonishment. When portions were served to them from Joseph's table, Benjamin's portion was five times as much as anyone else's. And so they feasted and drank freely with him. Let me add my welcome to Rogers. It's really great to see you here this evening. Uh, It certainly feels like evening, doesn't it? Um, uh, Hopefully you remembered about uh, the clocks. Well, I guess you did, because otherwise you wouldn't be here. Um, uh, But yeah, the evening's certainly drawing in. I'm not sure about you, it doesn't feel kind of quite seasonably cold enough yet to be uh, winter-like. Um, But I went into town yesterday and uh, had the misfortune of having to pop into uh, Debenhams who had already got their Christmas tree up and ablazing. Um, It can't be uh, long until we wait until John Lewis's Christmas adverts and see what emotional heartstrings they pull this year. Uh, But we labour in the news that Selfridges have already beaten them to it. In fact, Selfridges in London were the first department store uh, in the world to uh, release their Christmas windows. They really didn't want to leave it too late. They got them out on the the 21st of October. Uh, The picture of a perfect family Christmas scene. Uh, Actually, it's more about Santa than family this year, but the perfect family Christmas scene in a perfect wonderland setting with everything that you could possibly want for the perfect family Christmas. I'm really sorry for those of you who are thinking it's still two months away, let me get used to the idea yet. But anyway, the perfect wonderland, the perfect family Christmas Uh, the perfect setting. And I wonder sometimes whether that's what makes Christmas just so complicated for a whole load of people. I'm not sure about you, maybe your family's different, but when I uh, gather together with my family around the Christmas dinner table, um, 
perfect relationships and perfect family. My family are great, but you wouldn't necessarily describe it as a totally perfect family. Uh, We're not necessarily convinced, are we, that the gifts that we really want to receive can necessarily be bought in Selfridges and John Lewis. And even if they could be bought in a shop, as we gather around in our Christmas lounge, perhaps with friends or family, sometimes we're not entirely convinced that we're that good as people at receiving. That kind of sketches out something that we're going to look at this evening. Uh, We rejoin the story of uh, Joseph and his rather dysfunctional family uh, a little bit further on uh, than when we joined them a few weeks ago. Uh, You'll remember Joseph, he'd been, uh, there had been a plot to murder him, he'd been sold into slavery by his brothers and he's now risen to become Prime Minister of Egypt. So he's in Egypt. Jacob, his father, is resolutely staying put in the land of Canaan, the land of promise to him and to his family that God had promised to Abraham and his descendants. There's a famine going on in Canaan, a slightly ugly and uh, impoverishing site. And so Joseph's brothers, Jacob's other sons, are kind of ping-ponging to and fro between Canaan and Egypt looking for food. In the middle of this whole scenario, you've got Joseph. So God's seen what's going on. He's seen the darkness in Egypt. It's no surprise to him. He's seen the darkness in the wider world, and he's already responding by abundantly pouring out his grace. And he's chosen to do it by this specific family. And at this specific point, he's chosen to do it via Joseph, the instrument of his sovereign, abundant outpouring of grace. And so what we've got in front of us this evening is God's gracious abundance. We've got somebody who receives poorly, and we've got somebody who receives well. And that kind of charts our progress through the two chapters, 43 and 44, this evening. God's abundance, somebody who receives poorly, somebody who receives well. And it's all within this context of famine and feast, And the question for us this evening, really to keep pondering, is how well do we receive? That's where we're going. You'll find it helpful to keep your Bibles open in front of you, because we're going to kind of dart here, there, and everywhere through chapters 42 uh, to 44. First of all, let's start off with uh, God's grace. I wonder if you uh, noticed that at the end of our reading, we had a fabulous summary of God's free and abundant provision. Just take a look at chapter 43 and verse 34. It's going to stay there on the screen as a reminder for us. We've got bags of bones. These sons of Jacob turn up into Egypt famished. And yet in verse 34 of chapter 43, there they are feasting and drinking freely with Joseph. They don't know it's him yet, but there they are feasting and drinking freely. Joseph, God's chosen person to make the riches of God's grace abundantly clear, is doing precisely that. If you look back in chapter 42, verse 7, it's remarkable, first of all, what Joseph does not do. 
42 verse 7, when he meets his brothers for the first time, years after they plotted to murder him but then sold him into slavery as a kind of get-out clause, when he first sees them, the first thing that he does is not to kill them. At this point, he's prime minister of Egypt. They've turned up looking for food. He doesn't kill them. In fact, he has an enormous degree, not just of mercy, but of compassion. There's kind of more emotion in these chapters than on the average episode of Strictly Come Dancing. They kind of seem to overflow with tears. Joseph seems to be perpetually crying. And these aren't just tears of kind of, I don't know, some kind of superficial sentimentality. You've got genuine compassion here, deep mercy, genuine compassion. And as we move through the chapters as well, real peace. The Hebrew word for peace, shalom, is shot through these chapters. Uh, Chapter 43, verse 23. Uh, When they turn up for the second time, the steward says, it's all right, literally, shalom. Just a few verses later, Joseph's home, verse 27, he reassures them twice in the same verse. How are you? How is your shalom? How are you doing at the moment? How is your peace? And how's the peace of your dad? Second half of verse 27. Four verses, three mentions of the Hebrew word for peace. God's provision of grace manifests itself clearly in mercy, manifests itself in profound compassion, manifests itself in deep peace. God's grace is totally free. I'm not sure if you uh, have picked up on this over the last few weeks, but in uh, chapter 42, verse 25, uh, we pick up that Joseph had uh, given his uh, his steward uh, really clear instructions. When the men go, put the silver they bought to pay for the food, put that in the mouths of their sacks before you send them on their way. Uh, That had kind of confused and scared the brothers. They, they, They actually wondered if it was some kind of trap. They were so used in their own family circumstances in the ancient world. They were so unused to seeing their needs being catered for free of charge. They were so used to having to find their own way that this kind of grace, they just assumed that it would be some kind of trap. And so if you remember, when they, uh, they go back, uh, Jacob gives them clear instructions. We'll, we'll take back the silver to clear the debt from the first lot, take back another amount of silver to buy the food that you're going to need to pay for this time. And I wonder if you remember from chapter 43, verse 11, uh, go with this gift, which was exceptionally generous for starving people, a little balm, a little honey, some spices, some myrrh, some pistachio nuts, some almonds. Make sure you pay your way. Make sure that you do everything that is possibly within your power to not impinge on Joseph. Basically, try to cover everything as much as you can yourself. Well, uh, it becomes clear as we read through chapter 43 just how much Joseph is acting as God's agent of grace. I wonder if it stood out for you as it did for me. Uh, Verse 23, again, Uh, The steward kind of identifies who's behind all of this gracious feast-throwing. He says, don't be afraid. Your God, the God of your father, 
has given you treasure in your sacks. And then he says, kind of slightly tantalizingly, I received your silver. I wonder whether Joseph, the brother, had kind of paid the steward out of his own pocket so that the steward got the money and he thought it had all been paid for. We, we, we don't know, but I wonder how it happened. But we, we're clear that God is behind all of this. And in fact, God's blessing is so huge. Did you notice at the beginning of chapter 44 that the same thing happens again? They go down to buy food again, and chapter 44, verse 1, fill the men's sacks with as much food as they can carry, certainly unstinting, abundant generosity, and put each man's silver in the mouth of his sack. Two lots of food, both totally free, And then we get this feast at the end of chapter 43, which is equally free and abundant. In fact, it's so abundant that Benjamin, Joseph's full brother, uh, gets five times as much as everybody else. They don't pay anything. Here is God's feast of grace. It's a feast of mercy, a feast of compassion, a feast of peace, and it's totally free of charge. So we land back at that question that we asked ourselves right at the start. How well is this feast received? And we're going to see two answers. One person who receives badly, one person who receives uh, well. Before we do, uh, let me tell you about my grandmother. Um, uh, Growing up in uh, my family household, November and uh, December were kind of filled with the usual kind of childlike joy uh, building up to Christmas. We were really excited um, about everything that was going to go on. My family really uh, close, uh, partly thanks to my grandmother. She was a great grandmother. She really um, enjoyed looking after her family well, but she wasn't necessarily the person who received the most graciously Uh, out of all of us. Uh, And so the build-up to Christmas was often tinged with a little bit of um, uh, trepidation. We knew the chat would happen at some point, we just didn't know when. And it got, as Gran got older, it got earlier and earlier each year. She would kind of sit in her slightly kind of matriarchal armchair uh, and gather the family around, often over Sunday lunch before Christmas, and she would say something that went like this every year, like a broken record. Um, Got everything I'd need... Don't need anything. Uh, Don't want any presents. Don't buy me anything for Christmas. Um, In fact, if you buy me anything for Christmas, I'll only throw it away anyway. Uh, And that was the end of the conversation. We had the conversation repeated several times every year. It it, it really kind of put a slight dampener on the whole Christmas present thing. Uh, Because you'd sit around the table on Christmas Day and you knew that you'd have this slightly weird setup. You'd have a family which in many ways was enjoying Christmas together, but there was kind of Gran being a slightly bar humbug about the whole kind of receiving Christmas presents thing. My Gran certainly didn't receive graciously. And as we meet Jacob uh, going into his old age, he doesn't really necessarily receive the feast of God's grace well. He's a bit all bar humbug about the whole thing. Chapter 43 really is marked for him as a chapter, I'm not sure whether you noticed, of staying put in the land of famine. And to be fair, in many ways, let's not be too hard on Jacob, you can sort of understand why. God had promised to Abraham, his grandfather, 
uh, that this would be the land that his family would fill with countless descendants. It would be a land of promise. And so perhaps understandably at the beginning of chapter 43 and the verses that follow, we, we read how Jacob is reluctant to leave the land. Perhaps understandably, he's, he's reluctant to let his sons go. Reuben and then Judah are really kind of getting on his case to let them take Benjamin to Egypt to free Simeon. And Jacob is reluctant. Why was he let his second favorite son, Benjamin, go? So we've both got an understandable situation. Judah and the family and the brothers are starving. They're getting impatient with their father. Jacob's trying to cling on to his family and to his land for all it's worth. And so when he gets to the prayer before they go off, it all reads slightly, I'm not sure whether it struck you, as a little bit of an anticlimax. It's there for us in verse 14 of chapter 43. His final words, really, to his family as they go off. And may God Almighty grant you mercy before the man so that he will let your other brother and Benjamin come back to you. As for me, if I'm bereaved, I'm bereaved. Uh, Jacob invokes the name of God Almighty, the Lord who had sworn by himself when he entered into that covenant with Abraham to give him a land and a family. I wonder if there's a certain degree of irony there as Jacob is invoking that name, recalling this promise that had seemed so dazzling, so much like a Selfridge's window, wonderland, perfect family, and there's a bitter disappointment as that's the scene that he looks at. I wonder if there's a certain sense of bar humbug resignation about it. If I'm bereaved... I'm bereaved. I wonder if he looks at this life that he's, he's tried to build by wrestling, by deceiving his own father into passing on God's blessing. This life where he's tried to cling for all he's worth onto God's promises, but now it just seems to be slipping between his fingers. He's done everything he can. He's done everything in his power, but yet it's slipping away, or so it seems. At least for the moment, the family dinner table looks broken, looks dysfunctional. This is not a wonderland. It's certainly less of a feast and more of a famine. And I wonder if that touches down with us at all. I wonder how well we receive Uh, I wonder if, although God lays a free feast of grace before us, so often our lives are dominated by us trying to meet our own needs with our own strength. And to be fair, it's understandable. It's understandable as a country that we long for fair government, that we long for peace with other nations and worldwide partners, that we want a welfare state that genuinely looks after everybody in society. That's a promise that we long for, and we long for rightly. As a church, we long for that promise of a totally, 
totally jam-packed church, full of life, reaching out into our community, sharing the good news of Jesus with North Oxford, gathering people in and sending people out in the power of God's Spirit. We long for the promise of perfect internal unity and perfect going out there and sharing it. We long for that, and we long for that rightly. That's totally understandable. As, a, as an individual, maybe we long for perfect relationships with our friends, with our family, perfect relationships with ourselves deep within. How do we psychologically fit together? How do I live with myself? We long for all of that to be a perfect wonderland, and that is entirely understandable. It's not wrong that we work towards those things. But I wonder whether sometimes we work towards those things more in our own strength than relying on God. I wonder if we can be a little bit like Jacob. We seek the realisation of the promise that we long for by clinging on with all our strength, only to find that as we rely on our own strength alone, the realisation of that promise slips between our fingers. I wonder sometimes whether the more we try to do it ourselves the more we end up feeling slightly disappointed. Does our impulse towards self-sufficiency mean that our hands ready to receive God's grace are more clinging on for dear life in our own strength than open to receive the feast of grace he wants to lay before us? Less of a feast and more of a famine. If that's the case, challenging stuff and it looks understandably difficult and desperate. But there is somebody in this story, which I've just been thrilled as I've read it, who receives really well. What does brilliantly good receiving look like? And it comes from an an unlikely source. Uh, You might remember we met Judah in chapter 37. Uh, Judah's a bit of a mess. In chapter 37, it's Judah who, along with Reuben, is the leader of the brothers who are trying to sell Joseph into slavery after they've dismissed the plot to kill him outright. Uh, Judah, having sold his brother into slavery, uh, then uh, decides to leave his family and to leave his brothers altogether and to go down to the land of Canaan. He marries a Canaanite woman he embarks on a whole load of really destructive relationships that end up covering him in complete shame and dishonour. But by chapter 43, we're picking up that Judah is a changed person. I'm not sure whether you notice, but down in verse 9 of chapter 43... Judas implored Jacob to let him take Benjamin to go and free Simeon in Egypt. And the words he uses in verse 9, I think, ought to strike us. Judah, in chapter 38, was the guy who was covered in shame. He knows what to be shamed is like. Paul spoke really compellingly on that, both in his morning sermon last week and in his sermon on Genesis 42. And here's Judah saying this, verse 9, I myself will guarantee Benjamin's safety. You can hold me personally responsible for him. If I do not bring him back to you and set him here before you, I will bear the blame, I'll bear the 
shame before you all my life. Here's somebody who really knows what shame looks like, who's sold a brother into slavery, who's disappointed his father and deceived him, and here he's starting to be willing to take shame should this particular plan go wrong. Judah seems like a changed person. And that change in Judah's life, as we work forward into chapter 44, which we didn't have time to read, that change in Judah's life is confirmed. The brothers uh, go down to, uh, to Egypt. Uh, we've read that Jacob rather resignedly kind of uh, allows them to take Benjamin with them, and they go down to free Simeon uh, in prison there. Joseph, for his part, really wants to keep Benjamin in Egypt. He's his full brother. He wants a pretext for keeping him there. And so, in the opening verses of chapter 44, he hatches a plan to hide a silver cup in Benjamin's sack of wheat so that he's got a pretext for arresting him and keeping him in Syria. So that's what happens. And we rejoin the story in chapter 44, verse 3, as the men are going back to Canaan. The cups discovered there in uh, verse 3 and following, verses 3 to 5. And Judah, who's already in chapter 42 taken the opportunity to confess his past crimes and own up to them, he's already taken the opportunity in chapter 43 to change direction and now to start offering himself to help his brothers In chapter 44, he goes even further. It's the second time in this story where God's name's brought into the mix. It's actually the third time. We've had uh, Jacob's prayer. We've had the steward identifying that God's grace is behind all of this. And I'm not sure whether you notice, but God's brought in for a third time in chapter 44, verse 16. We recognize that God has uncovered your servant's guilt. God is giving Judah an even further opportunity to both confess how he's gone wrong and to know the graces of God's mercy, compassion, and peace. And that's exactly what Judah does. If you look down at verses 27 to 28, he confesses his shortcomings and sin from the past when he sold Joseph into slavery. He's, he confesses that now even more fully than he has done before. Joseph can really be sure that this guy's repented. And then in verses at 32 to 34, uh, Judah in this context doesn't just say, I'll bear the shame of it. He says to Joseph, well, actually, Don't lay the blame on Benjamin and keep him here as your slave. Here, take me. Judah is now all in. He's so experienced God's grace. He's so experienced God's mercy and compassion and peace. He's so seeing it in Joseph, although he doesn't know who his brother is yet, that Judah goes all in and says, look, take me. Here was Judah, remember, Judah who sold his brother into slavery and who deceived his father. And his repentance, his change of direction is so thoroughly complete that by the time we get to chapter 44, Judah is saying, I will give myself as a slave instead of my brother 
and I will allow myself to stay here so that my father is not grieved. Judah's repentance is total. In Judah, we see what it's genuinely like to receive and to be changed. Judah's life is less of a famine and more of a feast. And so we get back to that question from the start. How good are we, how good are you, how good am I, at receiving God's grace? It might be that uh, you're here for the first time this evening. Maybe you don't normally go to church. It might be that you've been coming along to St Andrew's for a while. But you might not have ever really taken God up on his offer of free grace. Mercy that doesn't give us what we deserve. Compassion that gives us what we don't deserve. Restored relationship with him. Peace around his feast table. And all of that free of charge. You might want to accept and receive God's offer to confess and to admit your shortcomings. You might want to receive God's offer to share free of charge in that feast of his grace, to take up the opportunity both to know that relationship and to live out a changed life. It might be that a good many of us here this evening would call ourselves Christians. So I wonder what the question of receiving God's grace looks like from our point of view. It might be that we've we've got a very clear idea, perhaps, of what that looked like in the past, but it might be that over the course of months or or years, or perhaps in one or two difficult areas of life, we need really to to receive God's grace afresh. We've noticed perhaps what it looks like to, to keep or to start clinging back on to what God has provided uh, in terms of supplying everything we need as we've gone on in our Christian life, although we, know, we knew at the start that God provided everything we need, as we've walked on, actually, we've started to cling back on and to start to try to do things again, to bring about the promises that we so long to see revealed, slightly more in our own strength than relying on God and his. In Joseph, we see the fullness of God's grace revealed. Uh, at this point in uh, the Bible story. And in Judah, we see what it looks like to receive God's grace. Back to where we started. The, the hope of a perfect Christmas wonderland. Perfect relationships in a perfect wonderland setting. I guess that's everybody's Christmas wish. We recognise that we're not perfect, but we long for it. We long for that perfect land and those perfect relationships. And that's totally understandable, but it's, it's bound to end in famine if we try alone and in our own strength. The Bible teaches us that perfection is something that's received. It's received at the feast of God's table of grace. And so the question, how well are we receiving? As we approach Christmas, uh, we see in, 
uh, in that familiar story, a real feast of God's grace in the Christ child. And I'm going to finish uh, our sermon together this evening just by recalling for us some of the words from perhaps the most famous Christmas reading from John chapter 1. Let me just read these verses from John chapter 1 and then I'll pray for us. Here's what John says of Jesus. To all who received him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Children born not of natural descent nor of human decision or a husband's will, but born of God. From the fullness of his grace, we have all received one blessing after another. Let's pray together. Our Father God, we thank you for uh, the feast of grace that you set before us, a feast of mercy and compassion and peace with you and with each other. We thank you that we get the privilege of recalling that feast tonight as we remember what Jesus gave up for us on the cross He who offered himself to death, that we might go free. And we thank you for the chance that we get as those who have received that grace from you to live it out. And we're sorry perhaps for those uh, times in our lives where for one reason or another we, we revert to clinging on for dear life in our own strength. We pray that you'd help us to see those areas and to, in a fresh way, receive your grace. Thank you that in your love and uh, abundant generosity, you pour out your grace. It wells up from within. It flows from above. And so we pray now, we open ourselves uh, and uh, pray that you'd help us to receive that shower of blessing from above, that welling up of grace within. We pray it for your namesake. Amen.